Section two of Wayside and Woodland Trees A Pocket Guide to the British Silva by Edward Stepp. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Native Trees and Shrubs, Part two. The Alder, Ulnus glutinosa. Although the alder is abundant by riversides and in all low-lying moist lands as far north as Caithness, it is not so generally well known at sight as the oak, the beech, and the birch. It is a small tree, ordinarily only thirty to forty feet in height, with a girth from three to six feet, though occasionally it aspires to seventy feet in height. This is when it is growing in moist loam, upon which rain or floods have washed down good layers of humus from woods at a higher elevation. If, with its roots thus well cared for, its head is in a humid atmosphere, the alder is in happy case. If it has had the misfortune to get into a porous soil, though this may be moist enough to please an ash, the alder becomes merely a big bush. The bark of the alder is rough and black and the wood soft. Whilst the tree is alive, its wood is white, but when cut and exposed to the air, it becomes red. Finally, on drying, it changes to a pinkish tint. As timber, it has no great reputation, except for piles or other submerged purposes, when it is said to be exceedingly durable. It has also enjoyed a great reputation for making the best charcoal for the gunpowder mills, and it is largely used by the turner, the woodcarver, and the cabinet-maker. The leaves, which have short stalks, and are from two to four inches long, are roundish with a wedge-shaped base. They have a waved and toothed margin, and remain green long after the leaves of other trees have fallen. In their young condition, these leaves are covered with hairs, and are sticky to the touch, and it is to this fact that the name glutinosa has reference. The flowering of the alder is very similar to that of the birch, but the male catkins have red scales, and each flower four stamens. The female spikes have the fleshy scales covered by red-brown bracts of a woody consistence, which persist after the fruit has dropped out of them. Seed is not produced until the alder is twenty years old, and the crop is repeated almost every year after. The cones are ripe about October or November, when they scatter their fruit, but the empty ones persist in hanging to the branches throughout the winter in numbers sufficient to give the leafless tree a brown appearance from a little distance. The immature male catkins are in evidence at the same time. There is a variety, incisa, of the alder in which the leaves are so deeply toothed that they bear a close resemblance to those of the hawthorn. In some localities, the tree is called the howler and aller, the latter word apparently the original name, for its Anglo-Saxon forms were aller, aller, and aller. The hornbeam, Carpinus betulus. The hornbeam is frequently passed by as a beech, to which it has a very close superficial likeness, but a comparison of leaves, flowers, or bowl would at once make the differences obvious. It is usually found in similar situations to the beech, though it does not ascend so far up the hills as that species. On dry, poor soils it does not attain its full proportions and may only be classed as a small tree. 
but when growing on low ground in rich loam or good clay it reaches a height of seventy feet with a girth of ten feet if two measurements of the bowl's diameter be taken at right angles to each other they will be found to differ greatly a section of the trunk will not show a circular outline but rather an ellipse the bowl appearing to have been flattened on two sides it is coated with a smooth gray bark usually spotted with white the leaves are less symmetrical than those of beech and are broader towards the base they are of rougher texture hairy on the underside and their edges are doubly toothed in autumn they turn yellow then to ruddy gold but a few days later they have settled into the rusty hue they retain throughout the winter in those cases where they remain on the tree until spring the wood is exceedingly tough and not to be worked up with ease but it is considered to make admirable fuel evelyn says it burns like a candle there are those who say that the name hornbeam has reference to the tough or horn-like character of its beams others declare that in the days when bullocks were yoked to the plough the yoke was made of this wood as being fitted by its toughness to stand the strain and as it was attached to the horns it became the horn beam a third theory is that the name was derived from ornus the manna ash with which early botanists confused it but with all respect to the authority of dr pryor who favors it we prefer to stand on the first suggestion with old john gerard who says herbal sixteen thirty three in time it waxeth so hard that the toughness and hardness of it may be rather compared to horn than unto wood and therefore it was called hornbeam or hardbeam the carpenter is not pleased who has hornbeam to work up for his tools lose their edge far too quickly for his labor to be profitable evelyn tells us that it was called by some the horse beech from the resemblance of the leaves the two kinds of catkins are similar and cylindrical but whilst the male is pendulous from the beginning the female is erect until after the formation of the fruit when it gradually assumes the hanging position the bracts of the male are oval with sharp tips each containing an uncertain three to twelve number of stamens in the female the bracts fall early but their place is taken by three lobed bracteoles which enlarge after flowering and become an inch or an inch and a half long a single flower occupies each bracteal consisting of a two-celled ovary and two styles only one cell develops so that the hard green fruit contains but one seed the appearance of these fruits in autumn as they hang in a spray from the underside of the branches is quite distinct from those of any other of our native trees the hornbeam's title to be considered indigenous has had some doubts thrown upon it because there are some records of specimens having been introduced during the fifteenth century but that is not sufficient ground upon which to deny nationality we have known persons to bring home from distant parts as treasures wild plants and ferns that were growing within a mile of their own homes it appears to be a real native of the southern and midland counties of england and of wales a line drawn across the map from north wales to norfolk roughly marks the limit north of that line the hornbeam appears to have been planted as also in ireland the hazel corylus avellana 
it is rarely that the hazel is allowed in this country to develop into a tree as a rule it is a shrub forming undergrowth in wood or copse or part of a hedge as it is cut down with the copse or hedge it cannot form a standard of any size but that the hazel left alone will develop into a small tree is shown by an example in eastwell park kent whose height a few years ago was thirty feet with a circumference of three feet round the bowl as soon as the nuts are formed the bush is easily identified by all so that a description of its character is hardly necessary the large roundish heart-shaped leaves are arranged alternately in two rows along the straight downy shoots their margins are doubly toothed and when in the bud they are plaited the folds being parallel to the midrib soon after the buds open many of the leaves assume a purplish tint for a while in autumn they turn brown and finally pale to yellow before the leaves appear the hazel is rendered conspicuous by the male catkins which are familiar to country children under the name of lamb's tails these may be seen in an undeveloped condition in the autumn when the nuts are being sought a cluster of two or three hard little gray-green cylinders is all that may then be seen of them but throughout the winter they lengthen their scales loosen and in february they are a couple of inches long pliant and yellow with the abundant pollen which blows out of them as they swing the female flowers are by no means conspicuous and have to be looked for they will be found in the form of swollen buds on the upper parts of the shoots and branches from which issue some fine crimson threads these are the styles and stigmas and on dissection of the bud-like head each pair of styles will be seen to spring from a two-celled ovary nestling between the bracts or scales of which the head is composed it is only rarely that the seed egg in each cell develops as a rule one shrivels and the other develops into the sweet kernel of the hazel nut the shell is the ovary that has become woody and hard the ragged edged leathery shuck is the enlarged bracts that surround the minute flower the hazel likes a good soil and will not really flourish without it though it will grow almost anywhere except where their moisture is stagnant its wood is said to be best when grown on a chalky subsoil of course as timber the hazel does not count but its tough and pliant rods and staves are valuable for many small uses such as the making of hoops for casks walking sticks and divining rods the bark is smooth and brown the barcelona nut imported so largely in winter is only a variety of the hazel as also the cob and the filbert so largely cultivated in kent the name is the anglo-saxon hazel or hazel and signifies a baton of authority from the use of its rods in driving cattle and slaves the lime tilia platophyllos those persons who obtain their ideas of trees mainly from the specimens they can see in suburban roads and gardens are in danger of getting quite a false impression of the lime it is a long-suffering good-tempered tree and like human individuals of similar temperament it is subjected to shameful treatment the suburban gardener who has a row of limes to trim uses the saw and amputates every arm close up to the shoulder so that when the season of budding and burgeoning arrives the row of limes will look like an upward extension in green of the brick wall 
such are the atrocities upon which suburbia has to base its ideas of one of the most imposing of trees the large-leaved lime growing in parkland or meadow with its roots deep in good light loam and its head eighty or ninety feet above is quite another matter such a tree is a thing of beauty and one can stand long at its base looking up among the wide-spreading limbs so well clothed with leaves of fine texture and tint the girth of such a specimen at four feet from the ground would be about fifteen feet larger individuals have been recorded up to twenty seven feet there are three kinds of lime in general cultivation in this country but the differences between them are not great they are the large-leaved tilia platyphylos the small-leaved t parvifolia and the intermediate or common line t vulgaris the last named is generally admitted to be an introduced kind and it is the one most commonly planted respecting the claims of the other two to rank as natives there has been some difference of opinion among authorities the small-leaved lime which does not occur in woods north of cumberland was regarded by borer as a true indigene but h c watson considered its claims as open to doubt though he had no such doubt of the large-leaved lime which is only growing really wild in the woods of herefordshire radnorshire and the west riding of yorkshire all our limes have similar straight tall stems clad in smooth bark and with a similar habit of growth they are trees that demand genial climatic conditions for their proper development and in consequence they do not put forth their leaves until may the period of their leafy glory is comparatively short for they are among the trees that lose their leaves earliest in autumn after having been for a few days transmuted into gold the leaf of the lime is heart-shaped with one of the basal lobes larger than the other and the edges cut into saw-like teeth there are slight differences in those of the three species which will be indicated below in its floral arrangements the lime differs from the trees previously mentioned in that it has distinct sepals and petals an abundance of honey and strong sweet fragrance as of honeysuckle unlike them it does not trust to so rough and ready an agent of fertilization as the wind so that it waits until its boughs are well clothed with leaves before putting forth its yellowish white blossoms these are in clusters cymes of six or seven the stalks of all arising from one very long and stouter stalk which is attached for half its length to a thin and narrow bract individually regarded the flowers will be found to consist of five sepals five petals and oval ovary with a style ending in a five-toothed stigma and surrounded by a large number of stamens these stamens discharge their pollen before the stigma of that flower is fitted to receive it so that cross-fertilization is ensured by the visits of the innumerable bees that visit the flowers for the abundant nectar they contain and which the bees convert into a first-rate honey the flowers are succeeded by globose little fruits each about a quarter of an inch across yellow and covered with pale down in a good season these will be found to contain one or two seeds but too often in this country the summers are too cool to ripen them the lime does not begin to bear until about its thirty-fifth year it flowers every year thereafter but the question of its seed crop depends entirely upon the weather 
for the purposes to which large timber is usually put the light white wood of the lime is not highly esteemed not being considered of sufficient durability yet it serves for many smaller uses where its lightness and fine grain are strong recommendations it must not be forgotten that the wonderful carvings of grinling gibbons were executed in this wood it is largely used by the makers of musical instruments and as every one knows it is from the inner bark of the lime that those useful bast mats which are imported from russia in such large numbers are made probably owing to its lightness again the wood was used in old times for making bucklers the question of its value as timber is probably never taken into account when it is planted in this country where its ornamental appearance as an avenue or shade tree is its great recommendation it is one of the long-lived trees its full life period being certainly five centuries those in st james's park are popularly supposed to have been planted at the suggestion of john evelyn somewhere about the year sixteen sixty there is a fine lime avenue in bushy park probably planted by dutch william deer and cattle are fond of the foliage and young shoots if they can get at them numerous insects exhibit a like partiality of these the caterpillar of the large and handsome lime hawk moth smyrinthus tiliae is the most characteristic the differences between the three species may be briefly noted small-leaved lime tilia parvifolia does not attain the large proportions of the others leaves about two inches across smooth on the lower surface the axles of the nerves are glaucous and downy with hairy patches between nerves fruit thin-shelled and brittle downy and very faintly ribbed the upper leaves show a tendency to lobing large-leaved lime tilia platophyllos bark rougher twigs hairy leaves larger four inches and rougher downy beneath axles of the nerves woolly fruit of more oval shape woody and strongly ribbed when ripe common lime tilia vulgaris intermediates between the others leaves larger than those of t parvifolia smaller than those of t platophyllos downy in axles beneath twigs smooth fruit woody but without ribs the name lime was originally lind a form which with the addition of n is in use today chaucer and other english writers spell it line and line and the transition from this form to that commonly used today has been affected by changing the n to m originally it meant pliant and had reference to the useful bast from which cordage and other flexible things were made the witch elm ulmus montana of the two species of elms commonly grown in these islands this alone is a native though the common or small-leaved elm ulmus campestris was introduced from the continent by the romans so that it has had time to get itself widely distributed over our country other names for the witch elm are mountain elm scots elm and witch hazel the last named being now more generally applied to an american plant the hamamelis the philologists appear to be uncertain as to the origin and meaning of which but it seems most probably a form of which 
just as a hazel rod is used by water finders who declare that its movements indicate the presence of hidden springs so a wand of ulmus montana may have furnished the witch finder with a witch hazel for the detection of witches the names montana compestris and mountain elm must not be allowed to mislead us as to the habits of the two species for though the witch elm is known to reach an altitude of thirty three hundred feet in the alps here it ascends to only thirteen hundred feet yorkshire while ulmus compestris which might be understood to be less a hill climber grows at an elevation of fifteen hundred feet in derbyshire as a matter of fact both species are much fonder of valleys than of mountains the witch elm forms a trunk of large size from eighty to one hundred twenty feet or more in height with a girth of fifty feet and covered with rough bark that is often corky its long slender branches spread widely with a downward tendency the downy forking twigs bearing their leaves in a straight row along each side the leaves are somewhat oval in general form but the two sides of the midrib are unequal in size and shape their edges are doubly or trebly toothed and the surfaces are rough and harsh to the touch the hairs that cover the strong ribs on the under surface serve for the protection of the breathing pores from dust on leaves of the pendulous form of this tree grown in the london parks and gardens these hairs will be found to be quite black with the soot particles gathered from the air trees need carbon but in this gross form they are too often suffocated by it in march or april the brownish flowers are produced in bunches from the sides of the branches they are a quarter of an inch long bell-shaped their edges cut into lobes and finely fringed the ovary with its two owl-shaped styles is surrounded by four or five stamens with purple anthers they appear in march or april before the leaf buds have opened and are dependent on the wind for the transfer of pollen the fruit is an oblong samara about an inch long this consists of a single seed in the center invested by a thin envelope which is extended all round as a light membranous wing which gives it buoyancy and enables it to float through the air to a little distance these seeds are not produced until about the thirtieth year of the tree's life and though they are ripened almost annually thereafter good crops are biennial or triennial only it has often been stated that the witch elm does not send up suckers but it does though not invariably it does so chiefly as the result of root pruning or some other check to the extension of the root system the elm most frequently seen is the small-leaved elm ulmus campestris which is therefore entitled to its alternative name of common elm constantly grown as a hedgerow tree it meets us at every turn though it is much less plentiful in scotland than in other parts of the united kingdom it is in all respects very similar to the witch elm but its leaves are smaller usually from two to three inches long the twigs often covered with a corky bark and the seed instead of being in the center of the samara is much nearer to the notched end the leaves are proportionately narrower than those of montana and it will be found that the hairs which cover the midrib below possess in minor degree the irritating qualities of the nettles stings this is a fact not generally known but i became painfully aware of it a few years ago when clearing away the suckers of an elm that were encroaching too much upon my garden border examination of these hairs show that they are constructed much on the same plan as those of the nettle 
a member of the same natural order by the way the fact that these leaves are browsed by cattle and deer may explain this development of the hairs which whilst they may serve to keep off sheep have not yet reached a degree of acridity sufficient to protect them from the larger beasts both flowers and samaras are about a third smaller than those of montana but seed is very seldom produced in this country and the tree seeks to reproduce itself by throwing up abundant suckers round the base of the bowl and even from the root branches at a considerable distance from the trunk these of course if allowed to grow would soon surround the tree with cops campestris often attains a greater height with its straighter trunk than mentana but its girth is not so great seldom being more than twenty feet its dark wood is harder and finer grained than that produced by the native tree its favor as a hedgerow tree is probably due to the fact that it gives shade which is not obnoxious to the growth of grass both species are subject to a great amount of variation and in nurserymen's catalogues these forms have appropriate names but they are not regarded as of sufficient permanence to merit scientific distinction in point of age elms are known to exceed five hundred years among the insects that feed upon the elm's foliage the most noteworthy is the caterpillar of the fine large tortoiseshell butterfly vanessa polychloros i have already mentioned the relationship subsisting between elms and nettles and it is a point worth noting that nearly all our native species of vanessa feed in the larval state upon the leaves of the nettle in london parks and squares the elms are much infested by the caterpillars of the vaporer moth whose wingless females may be seen like short-legged spiders on the bark whilst the male flutters in an apparently aimless way on wings of rich brown with central white spots in october the leaves which have for some time assumed a very dull dark green tint suddenly turn to orange then fade to pale yellow and fall in showers the name elm was derived from the latin ulmus and appears to indicate an instrument of punishment probably from its rods having been used to belabor slaves prior remarks that the word is nearly identical in all the germanic and scandinavian dialects but does not find its root in any of them it plays through all the vowels but stands isolated as a foreign word which they have adopted this playing through the vowels may be thus illustrated alm alm and elm anglo-saxon and english ilm olm and ulm in various german dialects end of section two